what is the reproductive cost of being Prop 12? How much of a, of a detriment to production am I going to see during my transition? And even after I stabilize and have a, a Prop 12 compliant herd, am I going to go from 90% furrow rate to 87 or 90 to 80? Or may I, am I going to be able to maintain my production long term? And that becomes a very important economic conversation as well, because that impacts how many animals we breed, how many animals we produce coming out of the farm, and the, the number of pigs per sow per year we can produce. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high quality, safe and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Gestal. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestal manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Gestal is not just manufactured by an equipment company, but by a family pork production business with a slat level understanding. Gestal always one step ahead in swine feeding. Hi, I'm Laura Greiner, your podcast host today for the Swine It podcast. Today I have Hyatt Probos with me from Jestall. Hyatt is their swine nutritionist uh, there at Jestall. Hyatt, how are you doing today? Good, glad to be here today. Good, I'm glad to have you. Hyatt, could you introduce yourself a little bit more to the audience and let them know kind of who you are and how you got to where you're at? Yes, well, a pleasure to be here today. And, and I, I do serve as the commercial director and swine nutritionist for Gestalt. I've been with that company for about six years after finishing my PhD in swine nutrition and reproduction at Kansas State, where I did my master's and my PhD. I'm originally from Ohio and I grew up with a cattle and, and hog background and really developed a passion for the pork industry in, in undergrad. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed my role in my current position because I get to help producers uh, adapt to challenges in, in their daily lives, especially with regard to group housing and the use of electronics and technologies and kind of the evolution that's going on, especially in sow farms and in, and in research. And that's been a fun uh, juxtaposition and challenging uh, crossroads to be at because as, as agriculturalists, none of us like change, but I think it's fun uh, and challenging to be a technical specialist to help producers navigate those waters and find the most cost and productivity effective changes. That's, that's kind of where I, where I fit into the equation, I think. 
Absolutely. I think that's great. Uh, some of your more recent experiences um, with your company is, is, of course, looking at feeding systems. That's what you're known for. And so you've had some actual interaction with something that's happening in the United States that maybe some of our audience isn't very familiar with today. And that's what we call Prop 12 or Proposition 12. Would you mind talking a little bit about Proposition 12 today? Yes, yes. And I'll start by saying, first of all, I'm not a lawyer. So some of the, the legal text, I may not do it justice. But I think from a slat level production understanding standpoint, I, I understand that pretty well. And I'll start by saying that Proposition 12 is formal name is the Prevention of Cruelty to Farm Animals Act. And it applies to breeding pigs, laying hens, and veal calves. It was passed by voter referendum in California in 2018, but for the swine industry and pork meat, set to take effect January 1 of 2022. This is probably the most important point is that it applies to pork sold in California, regardless of its origin. So some of us that are a little bit older, we may remember Prop 2, which was in California about 20 years ago, and it, it particularly applied to pigs raised in California. One of the big reasons why Proposition 12 is impacting our industry so much is it's being enforced upon anyone that produces pork for California consumption. The industry has made some attempts to overturn this, this law that's been passed and using uh, the interstate commerce clause, which has been used in other legal arguments in the past, has been relatively ineffective. Uh, basically, historically, one state hasn't been able to tell another state um, outside of their jurisdiction. But there's a clause in the Proposition 12 writing that, that uses the term that the, the extreme methods of farm animal confinement also threaten the health and safety of California consumers. And that clause has been legally used to uh, justify imposing regulations on production in other states for California consumers. And because of that, that the industry is moving heavily in that direction to at least adapt a certain percentage of our production to be able to comply. Important details for Prop 12 as they pertain to the swine industry. This, this uh, application, which I already said was breeding pig related, applies to any female pig 180 days of age or older. And each breeding female pig or sow must have at least 24 square feet of usable floor space. They must be able to turn around freely without touching the sides of their enclosure. Those are kind of the big, big picture things that are out there, but those fly in the face of some of the ways that we commonly house pigs today. There are a few very important exemptions to Prop 12 that are important as we talk about how people are adapting to this. Those exemptions include during research, during individual treatment, so if we have a lame or injured sow, we could confine them in order to get them rebuilding or convalescing. During transportation, at fairs and exhibitions, at or just immediately prior to slaughter. And then probably some of the most important ones are five days prior to the expected farrowing date and while nursing piglets. Those two basically uh, allow us to continue housing farrowing sows in similar production methods to what are common across the industry, still using farrowing crates of some form. Additionally, we are allowed to confine sows for temporary animal husbandry purposes, up to six hours in a 24 hour period, 
but not more than 24 hours in a 30-day period. This is relevant because as we want to artificially inseminate a sow or uh, ultrasound an animal, we could temporarily put them in a confinement enclosure like a stall in order to do that. It just cannot exceed six hours in a given day. And that becomes important as we look at how we can house these animals in a positive way and in an effective way. One of the other important little points there is that this applies to whole pork meat. It does not apply to combination food products like pork that's in soups, or sandwiches, or pizza, or hot dogs. So whole pork meat is what's effective. And as a whole, it's important to know that California represents about 12% of the total U.S. population, but in the state of California, they only have about 9,000 sows, which is less than one-tenth of one percent of the U.S. sow herd. It's also estimated that based on these California requirements, only about 4% of U.S. sow farms are currently compliant today. So we clearly have a difference between that 4% and 12%, and obviously getting those products to their endpoint is going to be an important part of this equation is the the logistics and segregation of product supply chains become very important. And so most analysts are expecting that this is going to cause at least a short-term shortfall in California compliant pork around that January 1st of 2022 timeframe. And the estimates that I've heard as far as conversion costs to take an existing facility and convert to Prop 12 requirements has been quoted at around $1,600 to $2,500 U.S. per so I think that's a, a decent background on the situation without getting into details there. Yes, I think that's very interesting. Um, that number that you gave us was per sow. So if I am a current producer and I already have barns, you know, what are my next steps? I think it's easy when you don't have a building yet and you're trying to create that building and you can design it accordingly. But as you mentioned, we have a phenomenal number of pigs already on the ground. So how do we start to prepare our barns to be ready for Prop 12? Yeah, so the first step is, it's gonna be a case-by-case -case situation. Uh, but this is where I, I've been actively involved with a lot of large production systems who want to maintain a presence in the California market. And it's important to remember in this equation that farrowing is not being affected, at least from a compliance But from a function standpoint, it's still affected because if I have to take my gestation barn, which might have sows housed at 14 square feet in a stall or 18 to 20 square feet in, in most pen gestation facilities, we are still talking about losing the number of animal units that can be housed in a certain, and most of the time in, in our hog farms, these are built to flow very nicely based on a production capacity. So we end up with a gestation barn that's going to have to shrink in terms of the number of animals it can hold, but we have a farrowing house that's still the same size. So most producers that have existing facilities are faced with a few scenarios. One is uh, they could just shrink the herd to match their gestation facility ability and potentially extend weaning age. And in some cases, producers that have relatively early wean ages might see this as a a long-term benefit or a glass half full that maybe they wanted to go to older wean age anyways. Another option is, of course, expand your gestation facility or, or add on a barn or convert uh, an on-site GDU to gestation spaces and bring your gilts in late development instead of developing on-site. 
this has been a common approach as a means to try to maintain the same level of production. Um, a third option would be to cannibalize some of your farrowing and turn it into gestation, which hasn't been a really popular option because farrowing space is often the most expensive space on a footprint stamp. So what we're seeing a lot of renovations do is uh, either expand their G-barn or add another G-barn or possibly expand production altogether. But another thing that I'm seeing many production systems do is they may have farrowing facilities that are currently still using five by seven farrowing crates. And many production systems that are investing in new facilities are uh, giving those sows and farrowing at least five and a half by seven and a half farrowing crates, but often eight by six farrowing crates. And I think that eight by six farrowing crate is an important number because that's generally referenced as the size you need six feet wide to have a turnaround crate, which allows the gate, the sides of the crate to open so a sow can turn around. And many of us on this side of the equation are anticipating that although Prop 12 does not regulate farrowing, many of us are saying, hey, if we're spending all this money to renovate facilities, we probably ought to try to think ahead to what is coming next down the pipeline. And I think most people in the industry that have their head wrapped around this would agree that turnaround crates are probably the, one of the next areas that are going to be scrutinized by consumers and animal rights groups. So some producers who have facilities that need renovation because of aging steel or facilities, they're using this uh, Prop 12 as a chance to not only renovate gestation to be compliant for 24 square feet and no gestation stalls, but also to put bigger farrowing crates into their facility, which could also be compliant for turnaround. And that, those are some of the different conversations that I've had with a lot of existing facilities. But of course, it depends a lot on whether you have existing fully slatted facilities or partially slatted, how many barns you have. Animal movements also become a very big factor in this as well. Absolutely. Um, in addition to that, how many, like on a percent basis, how many um, individual gestation stalls are you still seeing them keep in their barns? I think that's because, as you mentioned, we can have some for treatments and convalescing. So if we think about a percentage of space, how much are we still able to retain of that? This has been a, a, a big discussion point for many uh, in this equation. Um, I've heard different numbers, but I've been involved in several production systems that have already committed and already been down this road. What I am seeing is most of those barns that are you know, already committed and making the change are trying to keep around two to 4% of gestation stalls. And that usually represents a relatively similar number to the number of animals that need to fall out of pens because of body condition or lameness and for lack of a better word can be justified to put in a stall. Uh, and it does appear that from a, a California Department of Ag that if we have a thin sow that we need to rebuild condition on her, she can be considered individually treated. And so I don't think there's going to be a terrible amount of uh, uh, hand wringing over keeping a girl in there for the remainder of her gestation if she's truly lame and truly thin. But yeah, whether that percentage becomes a compliance issue is going to be interesting. But there has been a lot of discussion about housing animals and hospital pens and whether we should use hospital pens within their gestation open housing because we have so much square footage committed to these animals. Most of us in the industry would argue that 24 square feet is overkill, but I think everybody would agree that they don't want to 
have to take animals out of a 24 square foot pen because of lameness and now have the remaining animals housed at 27 or 28 square feet beyond because of removal. So not having animals take up two spaces in their barn becomes a very important space utilization is a very important conversation in this because in most cases, best case scenario renovation that I've worked on, we're losing around 20% of our spaces in a G-stall park. And that's, that's a big loss. So we don't want to make that 23 or 25% can help. Sure. Absolutely. So when we think about some of the, the management that has to go with this, you and I were visiting earlier about breeding versus gestation, right? Because I, I think back to all the work we've done where we talk about individual housing to get the breeding done, let them gestate for 35 days, and then we mix. So mm -hmm. how are people starting to address that idea of doing free access and breeding gilts or sows? Well, I'll, I'll quickly mention that different options have been considered for breeding in pens, but most people aren't super excited about loose breeding, op open breeding in a pen, or, or, or physically taking girls that are in heat out of pens to a breed stall to get her AI. So the, the prevailing wisdom is we should use a certain number of free access stalls, which are stalls that allow sows to walk in and back out of her own volition. But in animal husbandry situations, we can lock them in there. So many producers are using feed to encourage those girls in. We can temporarily lock her in and use a teaser bore or whatever to determine who is in heat and hopefully get her AI'd within that six hour period that's allowed within the system. Now, technically we need to allow those animals to go back into the pen environment. So it's important to remember from a sow behavior standpoint, these girls are already housed in pens. So dominance hierarchies and mixing aggression can and will manifest itself in that pen environment. It's easy to think of them from a management standpoint as just like a stall, but at the same token, we do have the importance that they get to go in and out of that stall and they don't come back to the same stall every day to eat. So we can't really modify feeding levels because we don't know for sure where she's gonna end up each day. But one of the big differences from what I've seen I have a lot of customers who are keeping animals in stalls until pregnancy check, 35, let's say 28 to 42 days, and then moving pens. In those cases, they can group a group of animals that were bred around the same time, scan them into our system, and move them to their pen at that time point. Well, in these free access stall pens, those animals might be in different places. And so tracking them down and organizing when and how to scan them and move them is a changing uh, landscape. And so one of the big discussions I've had with customers is what size of, of groups should we put in those free access stall pens? Some have argued really big pens. Uh, some have argued small pens. I might argue that we should group them as much as possible as sizes that are close to the size that they're going to be going to next and their next move. And now that, that, that maybe brings me to a good segue that theoretically we could keep these animals in free access stalls for the duration of gestation and, and have that pen stall combination. But in most cases, that has not been a terribly popular option because these free access stalls do have uh, a lot of cost. Metal prices are very high right now. They take up a footprint and they do have a lot of moving parts. One of the, one of the challenges that some producers who've had free access stalls in the past is that those moving parts eventually manifest in a lot of maintenance. And so, I've had some, some deep conversations with different production systems about the different free access stall 
versions that exist and you know some have 20 moving parts some have 30 moving parts some are rotted steel some are tube steel uh, those differences may become very relevant if i have thousands of them in one farm because maintenance can be a real bear in those cases so making the right choices now becomes very important but between the cost and the long-term maintenance equation a lot of producers are keeping enough of those free access stalls to breed sows in or maybe enough to keep them in a free access stall environment through preg check but it's been relatively rare to keep them in free access stalls throughout gestation because the loss of gestation spaces is even more than 20 percent because we need to have those alleys on either side of those and so not only does the square footage in the pen have to be 24 square feet but we have to have alleys for access for humans and boars and such and, uh, and that further complicates the space equation. So given that, if we're moving those girls out of a free access stall group at some point, we have the situation of girls who are bred, but not confirmed pregnant. And we have to balance that of how do we detect those girls of being in heat? Or how do we preg check those animals in pens? I've gotten lots of questions about how can we ultrasound sows in pens? And there are lots of producers already today that do this and have proven that it worked, but it's still a little bit of a foreign concept to many producers who are used to doing that in stalls. But I think maintaining pen integrity has been a hallmark of most of the animal uh, welfare research that's been done on pen gestating sows. And I know you, Dr. Greiner, were, were a part of some of the when to mix sows in groups conversation. Uh, and there's some pros and cons to different time points. But I think we could most agree that mixing animals more than once is not that great. The less times we can mix them and the more we can maintain uh, a pen integrity of group, the better. So from an execution standpoint on some of these early farms, that's been one of the crux issues that we're trying to maintain. You don't want to try to fit perfect group together if we have to mix them again, or we're likely contributing to additional pregnancy losses, possibly affecting number born alive, and the time of those mixing relative to maternal recognition of pregnancy, typically noted around day 11 and 12, and the placental attachment or implantation, which occurs around day 14 to 18 after breeding. So most people are trying very hard to avoid mixing at those times, but we do have animals that are already in a pen environment during those times regardless. So there's a lot of questions about what is the reproductive cost of being Prop 12? How much of a, of a detriment to production am I going to see during my transition? And even after I stabilize and have a, a Prop 12 compliant herd, am I going to go from 90% feral rate to 87 or 90 to 80? Or may I, am I going to be able to maintain my production long-term? And that becomes a very important economic conversation as well, because that impacts how many animals we breed, how many animals we produce coming out of the farm, and the, the number of pigs per sow per year we can produce. Do you have any idea of numbers at this point? Have you worked with enough farms to see kind of where we're headed? Or is that something that we're still too new into this to, to see? You know, one of my big bullet points on a lot of the, the conversations I've had is that, you know, 20, 2021 and 2022 are going to be learning years for our industry. And because California is such a big part of the U.S. consumer base, like it or not, there are hundreds of thousands of sows already moving in this direction at different speeds. Uh, the number of farms that are already Prop 12 compliant, you can about count on one hand and talking to them, you can learn some things, but it's still relatively early for them even on, on some of these equations. 
the numbers that I see most production systems using as budgetary estimates is figuring around a three to 5% loss in farrowing rate, Prop 12 compliant versus their previous, uh, let's say 100% stalls or stalls and then pens post prank check. I think most people are using that as hopefully a, a very conservative estimate. And most are hoping that we can exceed that as we get more comfortable. But I would say based on the change in management that this requires, and with experience of people that have moved from 100% stalls to post-preg check pen housing, not only do we have to help the animals adapt, but helping people, the farm laborers adapt is just as big of a part of the equation. And, and in my experience, even if you can get back to existing production levels post-preg check housing, the transition year or even a couple of years, oftentimes is a little rocky where you see a more significant drop off initially, but eventually a rebound. So I think there will be that drop off during the transition. Question is, is whether the rebound occurs because we are introducing some additional mixing events that are likely to not be positive on salary production. If a producer goes into their farm and they adjust it for Prop 12, is there any type of verification system or certification process that they're going to have to do to be Prop 12 compliant? Yeah, I think this is an area that has been, um, it's been, it's been thought about, but it hasn't really taken shape yet. Yet, And the state of California still has to figure out exactly how they're going to do this. But if you look at the recommendations from the Department of Ag in California, they do have a framework in place to enforce compliance. I think most would agree that the state of California itself doesn't have the manpower to go around to producers all over the U.S. and verify their production uh, standards. But I have some background in this from previous uh, consulting relationships that I have that these type of certification companies already exist for things like organic, grass-fed beef, uh, or um, Whole Foods has a, a production system called GAP that they use. And those all require third-party animal welfare verification systems. So there are companies that are currently available that have auditors that are trained at doing this. They'll obviously need to become certified to enforce California rules, but it'll be very interesting to see when that really becomes mandatory. Uh, technically, on paper, it should be January 1st, 2022, but I can already tell you there's not going to be enough pork that is compliant for, for Prop 12 on January 1st, 2022. While there are a lot of people that are heading that direction, I think the industry and the, uh, the retail industry in particular is going to have a lot to learn as far as segregating product, identifying product, differentiating it. And, and I, I use the example of if I'm uh, a retail chain that has a warehouse in Las Vegas and a lot of that product that maybe comes from the Midwest or a packing plant in the Midwest might eventually land in Las Vegas. But a lot of that goes on to California, but a portion of that might go to Arizona or Nevada, Oregon, Washington. If I'm a, a retail chain, do I take the time to segregate two flows of product in that warehouse in Las Vegas so that I can just send the, let's say, more expensive product to California and the less expensive product elsewhere? Or does, from a logistical standpoint, it just become easier to have everything that goes to that warehouse be Prop 12 compliant? And that's going to be very interesting as we get out. 2022 and 2023 is, and we've seen this with air emission standards from California on vehicles. Eventually, will that trickle back to other states and to a more widespread approach because California is just too big to ignore? Um, I, I, I'm very interested to see that because product segregation 
in, in the meat industry has always been very challenging. Uh, national animal ID systems, uh, you know, uh, country of origin labeling, cool, is a great example of why that is so unpopular is because of the, the onerous steps it requires within a packing plant. And I think that's going to become very important in this enforcement equation. But this, the, the foundation exists for third-party animal welfare verification to exist and to be done on these farms. And most of these other types of production systems or niche systems, those audits are done on an annual or a 15-month uh, interval. And that's where a lot of questions are asked within these production systems is, how do we know whether, if I was an auditor, how am I going to know whether my standards were complied on on the other 364 days of the year that I'm not there? And for biosecurity purposes, those auditors need to announce in advance when they're going to come so they can maintain downtime appropriately to be allowed into the farm so they aren't transmitting diseases. Will production systems uh, adhere to the Prop 12 compliance standards year-round, or will there be any... Uh, cheating that exists, I think is an important question. And I've been heavily involved with helping producers design facilities that could be Prop 12 compliant, but how they are operated on a daily basis is going to be very interesting. And the way enforcement is structured and who pays for it, company, or whether it's third-party auditing systems, is probably going to be a big factor on what level of enforcement occurs. But in my past life of, of working with some of those consulting relationships, one of the easiest things to verify is, are these animals provided enough square footage? Are there any gestation stalls on this pen, in, on this farm? And do they comply with the numbers that are allowed? So the building design and infrastructural requirements are some of the easiest things for an auditor to come in and see whether there's compliance or not. If there's 100% stalls on a farm and somebody walks in to verify Prop 12, pretty easy conversation that you are out of compliance. But whether those stalls are locked shut for more than six hours in a day, I think that would be very challenging to enforce for an auditor that's only there taking a snapshot of production. And I also think it's going to be very interesting for pen sizes because we can design these pens for a certain number of sows. Let's use 50, for example. 50 times 24 square feet is uh, 2,200 square feet, I think. Uh, maybe I'm doing my math wrong there. but we can try to have 50 animals that fit nicely into that box, but there's going to be groups of weeks where less animals were bred or more animals were bred. And I've already talked about the importance of mixing events. We don't want to take one animal out of that 51 group that was already a nice, neat group that are all bred around the same time, just because she's not, she's going to exceed the square footage requirements. But if we wanted to be letter of the law compliant, we would have to mix her with another group, which would ultimately probably be negative on animal welfare. And so I think that biological variation that exists in these sow farms is going to be very interesting for those who are tasked with enforcing compliance. And it'll be interesting to see what that looks like probably in 2023 and beyond would be my guess. That's a very good conversation. I think that's exactly right. You've, you've hit some of the key areas. You've helped us understand kind of where people are at today. Um, but certainly there are a lot more questions than what we have answers for at this point, <laughs> which that's typically how any new technology or a new advancement occurs. So it is time to our famous three. The truth is precision swine production is not the future. It is the present. Every pig is the intelligent pig health platform. 
It is a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Request a free 20-minute demonstration at www.everypig.co slash swineit. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. I do thank you for your insight, Hyatt. Um, as we wrap up today, we do have a couple of questions for you. The first question is, is what is your favorite swine book that you read? Well, I, I know Marcio and, uh, and Swine, it loves to ask this question. And I frankly wish there was more swine books out there. There's, there's not as many, you know, light reading swine books as you probably like. But for me, as a, as a scientist and as a nutritionist, I've always really uh, enjoyed Chantel Farmer's Pregnant and Lactating Sow. That's, that's been a great reference uh, resource for me, and I think it's still pretty readable. Uh, so that's probably my favorite one to, to just circle back to from time to time. Mm-hmm. That's a very good one. How about a non-swine related book? Is there anything that you're reading today or that you've recently read that you want our readers to know about? Well, sure. I'm happy to share. I, I, uh, I try to maybe not get too bogged down in, in uh, industry publications, I light side reading, but I, I try to challenge myself to read some of the classics. Uh, and if you look up some of the classic shell, some of those historical writings, but right now I'm on Marco Polo's uh, the Travels, and it, it, it's written by Marco Polo in I think 1500 or so, or whenever earlier than that, I believe, when he was traveling to and from China through the overland routes. So uh, trying to mark that that uh, classic off of my list. That's very interesting. I'll have to look at that one. Um, the last question I have for you today is, when you think about people in our industry that you identify as being successful, what would be some key characteristics about those individuals that you think have helped them be successful? Yeah, well, uh, now that I've been out in the industry for a few years, I've, I've had the chance to kind of see this and leading my team and working with different skill sets of my team. I've, I've gotten to see this for myself too. I see a lot of us that have gotten technical training at the university system. I think from a technical standpoint, we have the resources we need to be successful. The soft skills that are, that are maybe a little harder to train in a, in a university setting are some of the things that I think maybe separates the haves and have-nots in the industry. And being able to translate technical information into a user-friendly verbiage and, and sentence structure and relating that to the slat-level workers that we have in farms, as well as the business owners and, and financers, and being able to talk to different groups and 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 accomplish what you're trying to get across is very important. And I think being able to make strong uh, fact-based decisions, critical thinking and decision-making is one of those soft skills that I, I don't know that as many people have are well-versed in that as we'd like. And, and having those type of leaders in, in the industry, they, they tend to stand out. They can, they can do that and still you know, navigate the, the rigors of, of normal business from the slat level all the way up to the, the business management approach side. I think that's absolutely true. Those soft skills are invaluable and sometimes they take time to learn and a little bit of practice throughout our careers, but for sure it's something we need to continue to push to do better. Well, and there's there's good uh, opportunities at the university level to be involved in different teams or events or or contests and, and such that are groups that can help develop those soft skills. And so I've always been a big advocate for those and supporter of those, because I think those are the, those are, they help make people more well-rounded for the real world scenarios they'll face after they exit university life. Absolutely. Give them some good building blocks. Yes. 
So Hyatt, I again want to thank you for your time today. Um, as we walk away, are there any key takeaway points that you'd like our audience to think about in concern with Prop 12? Well, I, I just, uh, I guess I'd, I'd end with the fact that, you know, it's the legal challenges for Prop 12 are not complete yet. So it's going to be interesting to see whether any further legal challenges impact the rollout of Prop 12. But I really think 2021 and 2022 are going to be learning years for the sow industry. And how far we go on this path is going to be predicated on some of these things we talked about today and whether it's going to stop in California. We need to be thinking about what's coming next. It'd be nice to not be reactive, but to be a little bit more proactive to, to adapt production practices that are good for animal welfare, but also help maintain or expand the level of production we already see. And I think it's important for us to remember that our industry has been evolving for a long time for you and me. You know, I think it's good to remember that 40, 50 years ago, almost all of our sows were housed outside. And that's a pretty foreign concept to everybody today. But I think we can and will adapt successfully to these new standards. And I'm excited to help producers learn there's going to be some new good things we learn out of this. And I, I think hopefully we're also providing a better life for the sow, which is certainly a good thing. Longer. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Hyatt, again for your time. For our audience, this is Hyatt Provost from Gestal. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Greiner. Glad to be here. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.